You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Composer Shirley Thompson OBE is recognised for her unique approach to making music. Shirley pushes the boundaries of classical music arrangements and has recently been recognised for bringing more audiences to the genre with an OBE in 2019 for services to music. Susie Thorpe talks to Shirley. I mean, there was always music in the house, so there was always gospel music in the house, there was always reggae music in the house. Oh, lovely. There was always <laughs> um, blue beat music, um, ska. Um, so I grew up in a house full of Jamaican music. Uh, my parents are Jamaican, my culture, part of my culture is Jamaican. There was always a lot of music um, in the house, always a lot of dancing. I mean, I remember being taken to parties every week and weddings and christenings. <laughs> Delighted to have with me today Dr Shirley Thompson, OBE. And I say OBE, there are many other letters to the right of your name as well. But if I start off with composer, conductor, artistic director and educator and violinist, I would say there's probably a lot more to that, would you say, than what I've just got there. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's quite a lot for today. (laughs) Thanks, Susie. (laughs) And then underneath on your website, this is what I find really interesting, is that it says... Radio 3, BBC Radio 3 have quoted a pioneering and wonderfully dramatic composer, a leading voice in the world of contemporary classical music that was Classic FM. Now, in those words, do you feel you are a pioneer or a leading voice? (laughs) Thanks, Susie. Well, I know that I have had to carve my own way for for my voice to be heard in, in classical music because I came through a time in classical music when a particular style of music was very popular and um, esteemed. Um, I suppose analogous to this is perhaps looking at um, contemporary art, where abstract art leads, maybe figurative, aren't seen as as boundary pushing. And in classical music, in, in contemporary classical music, the world that I inhabit, it's very much about boundary pushing all the way and if you're writing something that's vaguely tuneful and my music is vaguely tuneful there's not seen to be boundary push- pushing by s- some persons so um but i think i've championed that way of introducing more lyrical tuneful but challenging encapsulating and 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 sensational music by using tunes and lyrical more li- lyrical material It's really refreshing to hear you say that because I am no classical expert. I love my music and I've learned to love classical more as I get older. But I feel that when I was younger, it would have been nicer to have learned a bit more. So when let's talk about when you were younger because you grew up, as I said, in the family of five, is that right, Uh, from East London. And you started off at school. Where did you find that this was the moment for you? You needed to be in music, or did that come a little bit later? Um, well, it's still coming, Susie. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was always good at lots of things. I loved history, and I was actually in going to university. I was torn between taking music and history, actually, right. and music sort of swung it for the balance because I'd spent so much time on. Uh, 
activities surrounding music, such as being in musical productions and being in the choir and being in the orchestras, whereas history was very much um, a book-led sort of activity and all in, all in the head, really, all in mind. Whereas music was a lot of sort of perform, it's very performative, as well as being very scientific and, and artistic. So I ended up studying music, which I'm very happy about because I, I went to Liverpool University specifically for the reason that I could take both modern history, which I took, and music. So, and my interests have still been very diverse mm. since that time. So you've been to university. Did you find then at a certain stage when you were at school that the story I want to bring in is because when my daughter was on holiday with us, we had a fantastic holiday away with another family, but I could hear a conversation, and my daughter told me about this conversation later on, but I actually heard the conversation where she was about 13, or no, she was about 15, and her friend was also 15, he was a boy, and they were talking about music and women in music and women playing instruments really? and in oh, orchestras. Goodness. And she said, we need, at 15, she said, we need to have more women playing in, the instru- in, in orchestras. Incredible. But oh. the chap said, women aren't good in, in orchestras. Men are better. Men are much better. I was so shocked goodness. at that, that at 15, and we're talking nearly 12 years ago mm. now that that happened. Mm. Do you found that when you were growing up that you had these sort of perceptions of women in orchestra and music? You're taken aback by that, aren't you? <laughs> No, I, I'm sh- absolutely shocked. And, I mean, we are having this talk on a day when, in the news... He um, was an advisor. An advisor. He? Yes. ..has been, has resigned because he had similar thoughts, very yeah. similar, very yeah. Yeah. very um, unpleasant thoughts about gender. Well, he's probably the same age as the, the chap that was That's probably... Right. So this is what worries yes. me, that we still yes. have this sort of... Yes. Yes. bias. Maybe you didn't find this, but mm. did, did you sort of see it, ignore it and move forward? Were your parents very encouraging? Yes. I mean, my parents, I think, I mean, especially my mother, instilled me with so much self-belief. That's because my mother has always said, you know, you've got the same brain as anybody else. You know, you just need to use it. So I, I've, I've just never felt different to in my abilities to do what I need to do or want to do mm. because from that very early from my very early days my mother has always said to all of us that we can be whatever we want to be I mean I'm, I'm aware of all the dynamics going on around me and I'm aware of all the yeah p- p- probably opportunities that I've not been offered um, had um, do you think that did you do you actually feel that 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 is something that you haven't been offered because you you are a woman or is that something that you've just yes it's been it? flaunted in my face <laughs> I mean I see it every day so um yeah um, I mean I can see when people are getting commissions to do things and get, and getting opportunities but you just have to keep going to get your own opportunity and that's you know just, that's the way I've I've worked with things. I think I'm quite a persistent person and a patient person, and uh, I think I'm a particular character that can be in this world of of art, this art world, which is apparently it's one of the most <laughs> vicious worlds you can be in, even compared to investment banking. My goddaughter said to me she she did both. She's a, a, a performer, or could have been. Yeah. She spent some time anyway in, in a, an office working in the admin admin management side of music. And she's now an investment banker, and she said it was much harder in music. 
in the arts world because there's so little opportunities so everybody's trying to grab these few opportunities that there are there. We hear a lot about women being an actress and dancing and musical theatre but when it comes to composing do you think that should be opened up do you think we should be hearing more about the journey of a composer because when you do see women composing like yourself and many others it brings a totally different dynamics, isn't it? Earlier you were talking about popular music that you've been brought up to. How have you contributed to not changing, but just changing perceptions of classical music? From the inside, it seems for me, I'm still doing that. I do realise that since entering um, the field professionally, I mean, when I entered the field professionally, I was the only person I'm aware of, actually. Um, certainly writing television music as I was. In what do you the mean you were the only person? In, in, in specific um, fields, so in writing music for television. As a woman? As a woman, was, right. um, I wasn't aware of any. Right. And when I worked at uh, Lime Street Studios and recording stuff for television, the sound engineers would say to me, well, you know, you're the only woman we've come across that's doing what you're doing. And I wasn't aware because at university you're instilled with this idea that you can do everything, and I thought that, of course, there are lots of women doing all this stuff. I wasn't really aware of gender issues. I mean, I had issues of um, culture to deal with. And so for, for me, cultural, what, what are perceived cultural differences and, and um, stereotyping, that before being female, cultural perceptions were what I had to deal with. I talk to many people actually about cultural perceptions and they find that there, there's a lot of work to fight through before even that's, getting that's right. to the work that you that's right. yes. are doing, quite yes. frankly. Just because people are of colour or of ethnic origin, how do we stop that? I think Always. it's, I think it's in an ingrained thing. Um, just in the way that my mother in, ingrained me with you know, my abilities about, well, all of us, that we have abilities and opportunities and we, we do the best we can with what we've been given and strive for that, you know, strive to be the best that you can. I think they're, they're, they're pretty much ingrained. So, you know, it's going right back to the drawing board and saying that all cultures are equal and, and important. So, Shirley, uh, I obviously know that you were the first woman in 40 years to compose and conduct a symphony. Yes, um, well, I completed the symphony in 2003. It was commissioned for the Queen's Golden Jubilee of 2002. So actually, we actually played that part of it to her um, on in that year, in May 2002, when she came to um, East London, the East London visit. I met her and um, had a little chat with her and Prince Philip. And oh, how lovely. It was lovely. Absolutely yeah. lovely. So memorable. I've got photos and everything. She's just very curious and she genuinely wanted to know what was involved and when it would be performed and she was delighted that I'd written it for her. Um, yeah, I just, she just came across as just such a lovely, really lovely lady. Now, you were named, I think, one of the 14 of the most inspirational women of colour as well. It is important, isn't it, to make sure that women of colour actually are recognised. And is that something that you find that you're always trying to achieve by mentoring and talking to other women who you've recognised as being 
as very you know interesting and up and coming people? Mm. Well, I mean, off colour doesn't mean to say you're of the same culture. So the distinction is that you could be somebody of colour, but culturally you have the same culture as somebody who's not of colour. Yeah. So it's very much, for me, the distinction is about culture. It's not about colour. It's never been about colour to me. It's always about culture. So if you um, have very strong cultural links to cultures outside of Britain, then that makes the distinction. To me, it's not about colour. It's about culture. It's always about culture. Because oh, you will meet many people of colour and... They don't. They don't have another culture. I mean, their culture is British. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, yes, it's ridiculous. It yeah. is well said, Shirley. I think that's a really, really good point. Actually, thank you. Mm, well, it plays into politics because powers that be will will say, "Oh, we'll get that person of colour." But it doesn't mean to say that they're any different to somebody who's not of colour. So it can be an advantage and a disadvantage. It's a tool that's used. Yeah. Yeah. In not always the best way. Yes. But the tool you have, of course, is your own skills and so much value you bring to the music world, which is composing. You're, as you said, you were a, you're a filmmaker as well. You work for the BBC. You do some magnificent stuff. But what project do you think has really taken you with the heart? And I mean, all of them probably have, but is there something that you've pushed the boundaries for? Because I, I read recently that some of your music, I, what I think is fantastic, actually, where is it, where you say you try and come out of the classical the cultural populist classical music and you are very a fan of R&B music reggae soul contemporary style which I think is wonderful because a lot of composers don't actually admit that and they probably like it right. and they probably love it but do you, but I think it's great that you want to and I think from that you're giving younger people the opportunity, aren't you, mm. to bring in. Do you find that you're doing it? I think that's your pioneering moment, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I mean, that's the music I grew up with. That's the vernacular. I mean, I grew up with that music. At the same time as growing up with playing Brahms and Bach and Beethoven, I was, you know, at the, at the discos until two o'clock in the morning, dancing my feet off. And that's what I really enjoyed. I mean, I love dancing. And I think dancing and going out, clubbing and stuff, in my earlier days. <laughs> <laughs> when did you become a composer then from leaving university and moving into the classical mm, world? Yeah, interesting question. There's no qualification to make you a, a composer. So I was writing music. I went on to take my lecturer, Prof Orledge, who's still my mentor, encouraged me to study for an MA in composition. And I did that, I got in at Goldsmiths, and I was delighted to do that. And I, I wrote a piece for an ensemble that performed um, very on, early on in my career, just after leaving Goldsmiths at the Purcell Room. One of my composer colleagues, who was quite a bit older than me, said, uh, oh, that's the work of a, a great composer. Composer? Me? Composer? Because there's no point that you become a composer as such. Right. I mean, now my students come in at 18, they're all composers. I compose this, I compose that. But um, in my day, you had to be peer-reviewed, you had to be acknowledged by peers who had done, who were established in the field, and then you'd sort of, you'd sort of get a nod that you were a composer. It was an automatic thing, and in sort of encouraging to the fold. I would say it was probably after I had my first professional engagements at the Royal Festival Hall and then Greenwich 
Greenwich Festival, I was a featured composer, and these all happened in 1985, that I felt, oh, okay, I think I'm a composer. People are calling me composer, because I thought composer was Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, you know, Stravinsky. Of course, they're all men as well. There were no women to... Were you very pleased with that? Well, the thing is, it's a very kind of nebulous field because there's no route to it. You make it up as you go along. It all depends on sponsors, who sponsors you. It all depends on your opportunities. The opportunities that are given to you, the opportunities you make for yourself. So people kept saying to me, well, how do you get that? How do you do that? I said, it's all in the back of a brown envelope. You know, there's no route. There's no... <laughs> it's not like being a chartered accountant when you know, you know, yeah. where you where to go for your, to get your figures right. And there's no route to it at all. So you, you really have to be, I think you have to have a pretty strong character and forge your own way and you really need your own individual voice. The art of writing music, the actual conducting it obviously is another part of it, but writing the music, how do you go about writing your music? Do, is, it, is it like any other piece of music? Do you find that you're sitting down at the table after dinner and thinking, I have a note in my head and I'm going to continue that note? Or do you find that you're... You're on the bus or on the tube. How do you get the inspiration? Mm, Because you've got a lot of music out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, all of those things. Sometimes I'm walking along and and this phrase is coming into my head and I develop it in my head as I'm walking to the tube. Um, All of those things. Sometimes in my sleep, sometimes my stuff. What I can't do is sit down and say, I'm going to write music now, unless I've already heard it. So I need to have heard it in my head first and then I can transfer it to some communication in a way that other people can hear it. But I need to hear it in my own head first and then I can produce it. Who was your inspiration when you were growing up? You were in a man's world at the beginning Mm. and probably still are a bit as well. Yeah, very much so. No, I just wasn't aware of it. I mean, I was just doing what I enjoyed doing. That's it was play to me, and school was play to me. Everything was play to me, and I, I just enjoyed it. I was a real nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all play. I, I enjoyed writing music. I, I enjoyed playing music. That's what I, I enjoyed doing, and I can remember that I was taking my music A-level, and I, out of the blue, I just started writing my own music for my little trio, which was, a, we had a flute, me on violin, and... And you were the violinist, I was the violinist, yes. was yeah. and a pianist. And I just wrote music for the little trio. And that's how it all started. Not trying to be a composer, just saying, oh, well, let's, let's just write some music for this trio. I mean, there was always music in the house. So there was always gospel music in the house. There was always reggae music in the house. Oh, lovely. There was always <laughs> um, blue beat music, um, ska. Um, so I grew up in, in a house full of Jamaican music. Uh, my parents are Jamaican. My culture, part of my culture is Jamaican. There was always a lot of music. I mean, the house always a lot of dancing. I mean, I remember being taken to parties every week and weddings and christenings. So very, very, I come from a very, very lively culture. So for me, writing music and performing classical music was very much the thing that Shirley did in the house because everybody else was, you know, doing other other kinds of music. It was just another kind of music to me. It wasn't a special special from what I really liked, which were all the other kinds of music. But somehow, at school, this was the music that you wrote. So that's why I wrote it. I know you put your heart and soul into everything, but there is there one piece that you've thought, I needed to do that? Yes, there's a piece called The Woman Who Refused to Dance. I was commissioned to write a significant piece 
for the 250th anniversary of the abolition of the trade in enslaved African people in 2007. I, with that 500 year legacy, um, historical legacy and current legacy, because I think we, we're still living in that post enslavement period very much in America. Trauma, there's trauma. I mean, I think we have an, an enslavement trauma in America, in England, in New Zealand, in Australia, where these enslavements have happened, these colonizations have happened. So I do think the world is living in this kind of traumatized state and not acknowledge, refusing to acknowledge till these criminalities are acknowledged. I think the traumas will continue. I was invited to write this piece and I didn't know what to do. I looked at the, 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 the whole 500 years of the, like the legacy of the trade, its repercussions. And I found, oh, I went to a meeting at Parliament with the archivists' Parliament and they showed me this painting of a woman that was created by Isaac Crookshank. I think it was, would have been around 1600s, late late 17th century and it was it was the news of the day and this woman was had been hung by Captain Kimber on his boat because she refused to dance that day and she was hanging from the sails or something and she had all the other enslaved people around her and she also had the sailors around her in, in this in this depiction they were all the Captain Kimber was hovering over her there were all kinds of implications with all these the dynamics of this artwork and immediately I was absolutely traumatised and I went home and just wrote the piece The Woman Who Refused to Dance it just went then gushing out of me Wow It's in there isn't it? It's mm. in your heart and it stays well, with you Well what it started was a series that I've continued called Heroines of Opera so I changed her state of being chastised and being criminalised into one of heroicism while she's being hung it's very much her inner voices you know this isn't me um i'm i'm actually a princess where i i i come from somewhere in, in africa and i'm not going to be demeaned by this inhumane treatment mm. so it's actually turns the thing on its head and she becomes a heroine and what has been the reaction to these amazing operas these and the and these aren't classic historic operas these are well they are historic it, it's a historic recount of slavery that is not often told especially in opera That's so right. what has been the reaction to this well um i get people just dumbstruck i think it's actually um sparked a lot of hidden history stories because i've since my piece, I've noticed a many, a plethora of similar things. People have realised that, oh, hang on, I can tell, I can do the, this similar kind of story. And so it's actually been springboard for many, many people doing comparable things. And as you say, opera has never been a medium that has offered this recount of history and you've started it. So that's been quite an important part for you. It's an important part, but I'm now struggling to get it into the mainstream, into, into the main stage, you know. Right, now so that is another next, area. So that is another challenge for you. That's my next challenge, yes. And why do you think there is a big challenge for this? Is that because they don't think it's popular? or do, I mean, who is resisting? And I don't want names, obviously. <laughs> I really don't want names. That's not what I'm here for. Yeah, but the yeah. kind of organisations that are resisting it, why are they resisting it? You need to please ask right. them for me. Okay, because I'll try. <laughs> when they performed, 
they do people are people just seem to love my work right so um i know it's not to do with the music it's to do with gatekeepers deciding well we'd rather somebody else get this kind of accolade so i continue pushing on with my 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 stuff what other things are you working on that's really taking up that's very exciting at the moment maybe we don't know or we shouldn't Mm, know but what are the things well in the immediate future i'm writing i'm part of a requiem about climate change and the devastations of it and this is being um, produced by Chinike Orchestra, who've invited me to do this, and Christian Aid. And this performance is going to be in the St Paul's Cathedral. It's a very, very big occasion. I'm very much looking forward to it. So I'm actually in the middle of writing that piece. You, as a person, are inspiring. If you want to talk to people who are at music school or in school, how would you tell them to be inspired? How would you get them moving and not be frightened by barriers Mm. on this present day? Yes, well, I do this on a daily basis because I teach, and um, they that's really... another another little <laughs> another thing you do, Shirley. Honestly, I haven't read all that list out. <laughs> yes, I teach at university. I teach music students. They really inspire me because they're so full of enthusiasm. They're so clever, very intelligent. They face a lot of challenges, and I say to them, the best thing you can do is to develop your own voice, your own philosophy. That's the thing that's going to take you to the next level that's the thing that's going to carry you so then they begin to really take confidence that their voice is what's really important their own voices and it is because that that's the thing that will make the difference lots of people are frightened by mistake failing at something mm. and when we, with good reason <laughs> with good reason absolutely yeah. so do you try and challenge them to come above that sometimes because not only do I'm talking about women students here and of mm. course uh, uh, male students too also have that but from a female point of view there is always that extra challenge isn't there oh gosh yes yes um yes it is a hard thing to face failure but to me I mean I've been I've had a lot of problems with pr- productions where be- different people haven't been happy with certain things but I've seen people who equally have risen from the most awful reviews I've seen and awful productions and they still doesn't stop them I think it's just getting dusting yourself off and keep going in my case I learn by I learn from things that haven't gone as well as I would like and I reflect on you know is this something is this to do with your own work or is it to do with structures most often it's to do with structures that you're working with and not actually your own artwork so you just have to find another way of configuring or working within those structures and in today's society culture whatever we're having to face social media as well so it's a, it's a great way of promoting what you do but it's also in this day and age and what's happened very recently we have to try and curb what we see as well and the reactions it's all very well getting reactions in and constructive criticism but you have to learn don't you to take or ignore i don't know ignore the really insulting criticism Mm -hmm. and everyone's had it um yes it's difficult it's difficult you've got the, the those are the gatekeepers but it's life everybody has it yeah you just have to push on and that's where your self belief comes in where you take the bruising and think well um, you know am I doing something that's worthwhile and then I'll get uh, get a phone call from persons like yourself who say that I'm very influential and I think oh well am I <laughs> you are <laughs> I've just had this awful <laughs> awful you know kickback so and that was that's what keeps me going and then when 
I have productions on and I see the response of the audience. I mean, the last production was ecstatic. Yeah, I, that must get that must absolutely it, fill you with pleasure. Oh, it really it? does. It really does. It makes it all worthwhile when you see how well people respond to what I do. You know, outside of the gatekeepers, and you think, oh well, you, that gate, that, that door there is closed. But look, people are really genuinely interested. Mm. Your favourite composer. Ooh. If there was someone that you aspired to, I mean, even if it was a recent one, I mean, uh, uh, do you meet many other women composers? Gosh, all the time, yes. Excellent, I, that's what I, I like yeah, to hear. I set up <laughs> with well, several of my friends, including Judith Weir, women in music back in 1985. So, and I, I'm still pretty much friends with a lot of those people, Erica Fox, Nicola Nefany. Yeah, I'm still very much friends with and people. you set up women in music is that with all these yeah. other women because we realized that we were a, a, a minority kind of activity activity <laughs> and um so we set up women in music and it was emotionally it was a important thing to do we got together on the south bank and we talked about our issues and so on it was very thera- therapeutic to have it i'm trying to think of since that i think we've had a cultural arm where the writers have written about women in music and, and so on so it, it was a very important platform and now we have several we have different organizations of women in music so mm-hmm. but to me that was the first and when you are not composing and when you're not working in this sphere what what do you do is there something that sort of turns you completely off and makes you sort of focus on something completely different. Is that something that oh, you... Yes, yeah, what do you oh, do? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I love films. Uh-huh. Uh, I love films. And and there are some really good television series. Um, I'm actually watching the second Queen, the second Crown at the moment. I resisted for a long time because <laughs> I really loved Claire. The first point, yes. Oh, I thought she was fantastic. You know? <laughs> fantastic. I love the first, I love the first series. So I've just started watching the second. Thinking, yeah, and um, yeah, it, it's good too. But there's something about, about the first series. So yeah, I watch a lot of television. In fact, I used to spend a lot of because I make films. So I actually spent a lot of time in the independent film sector. I've got two films with the British Film Institute actually. And tell us about um, those films. Those films. You? Oh, okay. Um, they're short films, and one of them is called Memories in Mind, and it's actually about a story of migration. It's about women, and it looks at stories of four women that migrate from the Caribbean, or speci- specifically from Jamaica, to England during the so-called Windrush period. And so you talk about finding work, getting married. One of them's a concert pianist. She talks about her times at one of the conservatoires and the funny little cultural things that used to, to happen there so it's it's a very it's quite it's a very witty film um because the women are very witty so it's um women it's actually the women themselves telling the stories and then there are dramatic interludes of a sort of generic woman walking around knocking on doors trying to get work and she's crying because she's locked herself out of the house and all the Things that happen to you when you move countries, mm. which fortunately for me, I've never had to do. But. but do you feel that when you research it, do you find that you are, you get very upset by what you actually find out that you didn't know before? Yeah, I think um, I felt the greatest trauma was probably when I was about 18, 19 and started to read literature by James Baldwin and... Um, um, so I had the trauma of the experience of other cultures 
maybe 10 years before. So I was, so what I was reading subsequently didn't hit me as much as when I first started reading when I was a teenager. But yeah, they can be upsetting, but um, it's also exciting because I'm finding material that's not known about. So it's more excitement than anything. So from my point of view, directing films and composing music were one and the same thing. So obviously it was the same process, except I was using different materials slightly. But they were all with the same intention of telling these stories that hadn't been told. I actually started that in film rather than in in, the, in music. Although, no, my first piece was about knife crime <laughs> in South London. Oh, right. <laughs> Your first piece of music, did you say? Yeah, it was called Suspected. And it was, all, it was about sus and men of boys of different cultures being picked up off the street because they were of different cultures. Yeah. It's absolutely fascinating talking to you. I wish we could I wish I could have a, a, a weekly podcast of you because your your whole enthusiasm, your work is fundamentally wonderful and Thank you so much. I really feel that we've um, it's been a great pleasure to have you here at Women Making so Ways Talks. Thank you so much indeed, Shirley Thompson, OBE. Thank you very much Thank indeed. Thank you so much for inviting me oh, here. Loved it. When I first researched Shirley J. Thompson, OBE, to really feature on our Women Making Waves, it took me about a year to be able to get her to record with me because she was a very, and is still, an incredibly very, very busy woman. A composer, she's a filmmaker, she's made music for the Queen. She's done lots of firsts in her life and I just love what she does. Of course she devised the music for the Queen's Jubilee as well. That must have been such an honour to be to be chosen to do that actually out of all of the musicians. She was saying in the interview that she gets a lot of her inspiration from her mum because her mum Obviously, we've heard this said that you can be whatever you want to be. But sometimes that's easier said than done. But it didn't really occur to her that that was an easy thing. She just accepted. That's a recurring theme, though, as well, Mm. isn't it? That's what we're hearing from a lot of the women that we interview, that often it is their mothers just saying, you can do whatever you want, you know, just believe in yourself. And the fact the mother believes in them, they makes them believe in themselves and makes them just do things because they they feel they can. And I think that's quite worth noting, actually. Okay, Susie, I'm really looking forward to hearing one of her pieces. What are we going to be hearing? Well, it's a piece from her album New Nation Rising, a 21st century symphony. And the actual piece is called Location, Location, Location by Shirley J. Thompson and Royal Philharmonic Orchestra.
You're listening to Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Mm-hmm. 